everybody, uh, Darren here, and this is the Supernaturalist Podcast Show, and this is kind of a different uh, format tonight. We haven't done something like this before, and I actually think that, uh, that this is actually a really cool opportunity. Um, a podcast is a, is a platform, and we use this platform to engage with all kinds of supernaturalists, really, really all, all, all over the nation, really all, all over the earth, um, and, the, uh, and I think it's really important that we take advantage of these platforms to have important conversations, and um, and so you know this podcast really isn't a platform just for me. It's it's a it, it's a platform where where people can can find a voice where perhaps they don't usually would have a voice outside of you know Facebook or or um, or outside of conversations with their friends. And I just celebrate the fact that tonight um, I get to make this podcast platform available to my friends at Seattle Revival Center. Uh, reached out to our community over a Facebook Live the other day. Uh, and just basically said, I would like to invite um, for my friends of, of color at Seattle Revival Center to come and to share their their experiences and to share their feelings and to share how they're doing during this 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 time right now. Um, uh, and uh, so I got an incredible response. It's such an honor to be on here uh, with friends. With, with more than that, to be on here with uh, actually with sisters. Um, uh, I got a bunch of sisters uh, with me tonight. They're my sisters in Christ. They are family. Um, I also have uh, my brother on here as well. Uh, uh, Pastor Anthony's on here. A- Anthony, if you want to wave at everybody. Um, yeah, there he is. And uh, we we, we kind of do everything together. And I, I've, uh, uh, Anthony, the Lord's been speaking to Anthony a lot about this opportunity for us uh, as a country. And so I felt like it was important to also include Pastor Anthony in our on our conversation, um, I got some incredible people on our Survival Center team that are joining us, including uh, Michelle Tibbs. She's our finance and HR director at Seattle Revival Center. Um, she is gifted. She is anointed. Uh, she, she she can she can prophesy. She can pray, and she can do math. She's she's amazing. And Michelle Tibbs is such an honor to have you uh, here tonight. It's also such an honor to have Victoria Gordon. She, I call her the brains of the organization. Um, Michelle, uh, I'm sorry, Victoria Gordon is our administrator at Seattle Revival Center. And she has been such a blessing through this COVID-19 crisis, keeping up with all the guidelines and regulations. And uh, so again, super talented, super anointed. She can do it all. It's such an honor to have Victoria on uh, part of this conversation um, tonight. Um, also, we've got uh, Holly Walker on here. Holly, it's good to see you. Blessings. Uh, anointed, uh, <laughs> a, 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 a real voice. I know that the Lord's given her some real uh, special things to share with us um, tonight. And, uh, uh, and she's super creative. I believe she even has her own clothing line. Is that, is that right, Holly? 
Not quite yet, but <laughs> I'm in Okay, awesome. You're cutting out there a little bit, but um, but it sounds like it's something that's in the works there, and uh, and so yeah. awesome. It's, it's such an honor to have you here. Um, also, we've got Arpana. Good to see you, Arpana. Thank you for being uh, a part of the conversation tonight. Can't wait to hear what the Lord has given to you um, uh, to speak into the conversation. Um, and last but not least, good friend Abby Edwards is here. Abby, it's good to see you. Good to see you, Darren. I'm so happy we have this opportunity to have a conversation around this very sensitive uh, topic. Yeah. Now, Abby, uh, you go to Sierra Vile Center. You're also um, on our finance uh, committee uh, at Sierra Vile Center. Yeah. Uh, and so you're help, uh, helping to make sure that we're doing things right and being good stewards. And you've been such a blessing at Sierra Vile Center. You're a real instigator of joy. You always know when Abby's in the building because you'll hear you'll hear laughter and you'll and and you'll see lots of hugs and and so um, uh, Abby is such a gift, uh, not not for what she does at the church, but for who she is. Um, and uh, along with everyone here, it's such an honor to have all. You, uh, it's such a. I believe that the Lord really has brought this entire group together. A very diversified group with a, a with a variety of stories and experiences and I'm so thankful for all of you guys uh, for being a part of this conversation Abby let, I'd like to start with you um, and I'd like okay. to I'd like to just open this up this isn't going to be much of a um, interview as much as it is just a conversation and so I'm uh, uh, you know I'm, I'm curious to to hear of course you know uh, how you're doing during this time but also uh, where do you feel like where do you feel like uh, during this time, it like like it's it's gotten real for you, where it's gotten very real, and um, and and if you're willing to kind of just bring us into um, what it's been like for you over the last uh, two to three weeks, and um, and if you can invite us into some of your own experiences and and into some of your own feelings, that would be that'd be awesome. Awesome, absolutely, Darren. So first, I want to just <clears throat> paint. A, a backdrop uh, of who I am and for people to understand my background a little bit because I'm just going to say it right out the gate and I think a lot of my other sisters who are on here, you know, in and, and comparison of Caucasian race or white people versus black people, um, for white people, all there, there's a distinction um, within the black community. So you have, you know, black Americans that are from the United States proper. You have black Americans that are from Africa. You have <clears throat> black Americans that are from the West Indies, which is where I'm from. I was born and raised in the Caribbean and uh, came to this country, you know, of many years ago. I came here at the age of uh, 18 to attend college um, in the Northeast. And I attended a predominantly white college, and um, you know it, it was it was very eye-opening for me. Um, just coming into the Caribbean, where you know black people are in the majority, and <clears throat> you really didn't see this thing about racism. I always tell people when I came to the United States, I became more aware of my skin color and my blackness. Wow, and. And I was not, my mother and my father didn't raise us that way to look at skin color or to judge people based on their skin color. 
uh, we were taught to love people, to treat people the way we want to be, tr- the way you want to be treated, and to respect people. And, you know, um, I'm going to go here and say my experience when I first came to the United States, I was really uh, taken back by the treatment that I received from other black people uh, because of my intellect, because of my um, political stance, because of my belief in Christ. And the fact that I was able to relate and to get along with Caucasians or white people. So that was a little bit of a shock for me uh, to my system because I had never experienced that. Um, But I will say this, I mean, I'm a single black professional and I never really dialed in or focused on the race issue because that's not how I was raised. I was raised to treat people the way I would want to be treated and you treat people on an individual basis. And I have to say that since I've been in this country, you know, there've just been, I mean, experiences after experiences. And I really don't like to go there right out the gate and say, okay, this is about my race (laughs) or the color of my skin. I want to give people the benefit of the doubt and not think that, but I have to say, Darren, um, In, in these last couple of months and even leading up to this, um, you know, I've d- before Christ, I've dated men um, outside of my race. I've dated Latino men, I've dated Caucasian men, and I have dated black men. And I have to say, without a doubt, there is a difference in treatment, okay? Um, you know, just going out to a restaurant and, and seeing how, you know, my Caucasian date would be treated and the service and the level of service we would receive, the level of attentiveness we would receive. And then, you know, I, I would compare that to if I, you know, I'm out with a black guy, uh, the lack of attentiveness, the lack of courtesy, the lack of uh, professionalism. And then with my Latino brothers, I mean, it's just like there's just no respect. So for me, you know, at later on in my time here in the continental United States, I began to notice and see distinctions in treatment. Mm. Okay. Um, now me as a, a, a professional black woman, you know, when I think back and over, over the time of my experiences, again, I don't default to okay, well, this is about the color of my skin. You know, you're treating me this way. Be, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm defaulting to something else because, again, that's not the way I was raised. I don't, I'm not oppressed. I don't have a victim mentality. You know, um, I was raised and taught if you aspire and you want to accomplish something and you apply yourself, you can be just as successful. But I have to say, with, with heartbreak in my heart, that that's not the case because, you know, whether I've come to the realization that I really feel like what's going on in our country now, I really feel that black men are hunted, are being hunted like animals. I really feel like, um, you know, 
you, you have a diff, you have a range, right? And I don't like to use broad categories because everyone is an individual because I don't want to be categorized with a group of people. Um, but I would say for the most part, um, a majority of Caucasian people just don't understand or want to invest the time and the work to get to know or embrace other cultures. Mm. Mm. That's good. Okay. And um, now that I am a born again Christian and I'm relatively new to this whole charismatic thing, <laughs> if you will, uh, you know, because I was raised Catholic, Catholicism is very big in the Caribbean. But then when I came to the United States, I noticed that, you know, a majority of the Catholic church churches were filled with white people. So I'm like, okay, whatever. But now that I'm born again, you know, received Christ, I've been baptized, received Holy Ghost, I speak in tongues, blah, 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 all of that stuff. You know, I'm just like looking at this situation here. First, it was the COVID and we have received prophetic words. We've been told what's going on. And that in itself, you know, had me heartbroken uh, for the fact that churches were closed. I don't believe the churches should have closed uh, because it's the place where people find respite and they're encouraged and they're uplifted and they're encouraged. So that was a the number one downer for me. And I stayed in prayer and I continue to stay in prayer. Uh, my family and I, we've been praying and fasting and, and, you know, remaining optimistic. But I have to tell you this, Darren, when this thing with George Floyd happened and, you know, honestly, it, I just really, it, it's not about politics. It's not about you know, Democrats and Republicans, although I could sit here and talk about all of that stuff, that's not the point. The fact remains, a human being, the way that man was killed, just really hit a tipping point for me as a black woman in the United States and paying attention to everything that's been going on in our country, what's been going on in our society, uh, things that I've seen personally. And, you know, I really didn't want to attune it to the color of my skin. But as time is going by and, and the environment and everything that I'm seeing, I'm just like, man, this is really bad. And I'll tell you this, racism like what everyone is talking about today, it's not about white and black because I'll tell you, racism exists within each race because I've, you know, I have, I had a really large contingent of uh, white friends and, you know, there's racism within the, the white race. I mean, you know, I've heard some really, white people refer to other white people with some very derogatory terms that just shocked my system. I mean, the first time I heard that when I came to the United States, I was appalled, okay? And there is racism within the black race, within the black community. And I have been a, a, a victim of that, if you will, or I have experienced that, you know, where just based on your economic stature, you know, if you're not from the hood 
and you know you're not talking ebonics <laughs> you're not talking with the slang and all of that other stuff it's like you, you know you, you you get treated a certain way or you looked you're viewed a certain way so for me as a born again christian um this thing with george floyd and the fact that it was a black man yes it was inhumane it was bad it, it was negative and it and it stirred something in me as a black woman what i say is yes there's systemic racism yes there is there are there are instances where you know black people are marginalized Pe black people don't have a voice black people are patronized you know when they when they're bringing something of value to the table well okay you don't you don't cut the mustard or let's talk specifically to the church you know oh you you're not anointed enough or you're not gifted enough so you know you're not going to have this platform or or you're not going to have the space to be able to 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 speak or to make your voice known okay it's a systemic problem but i think what the bigger issue is it's a heart problem a heart trauma that's going on in our country right now and for me you know i i saw michelle tibbs's post about what happened to her in downtown seattle and when i read that post i started crying because now it's like i, I feel like people feel like they have a license to walk up to anyone and say what they please and you know maybe white people are thinking that and there are closet white people out there and i pray to god that there aren't any closet racists in our church i really pray that darren um because you know racism is a sin it's a, it's a sin big time and if people are feeling now because we're in this environment they have a license to be overt in their comments well god bless them and it you know i ne like i said i never spoke out on race issues before but it it's it's been there it's been a subtle thing and i feel because of the environment that we're in now people just feel at liberty um to be overt and no longer covert in their heart posture yeah 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 Abby, that, that is really well said. Really, really well said. Uh, and uh, I want to make sure that I'm not interrupting you. Is is there anything else that you'd like to that you'd like to add there before uh, before I kind of respond and then you know? You know, I, Darren, I just really, you know, you asked me how I was doing. I'm heartbroken. I'm heartbroken. I'm heartbroken to see what's going on in our in our world i'm heartbroken to see the fact that okay this is a problem and people white people i'm just going to get real and keep it <laughs> white people are a lot of white people are standing up and i don't know for whatever reason they're not standing up uh because especially in 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 the in in the christian realm because you know god says we're all brothers and sisters and we are part of the body of christ and we have a saying here in our household when one person in the house 
is sick or hurting, the entire household is hurting. Right, 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 right. The entire household is hurting. And for for me, honestly, you know, I feel like this is something that's very traumatic. It's it's a it's a re-injury. It's a pulling back of the scab of uh, this the sin in this country, you know, from slavery and the dehumanizing and all of that mess. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but you know, maybe maybe we do need to go into the details of that because I don't think people understand or they're educated or they they know the pain. So I've trumped it up to, okay, well, people don't feel like they need to link arms and reach out and talk to their black brothers and sisters because it's like, okay, well, I don't want to seem political or I don't want to, you know what, skip all of that nonsense. It's about a human, it's a hard posture, it's a human thing. Your brother, your sister is hurting right now. And your brother and your sister needs to feel love. Bottom line. <laughs> Amen. Bottom line. It's about it's about feeling the love. It's about feeling the camaraderie, the solidarity. You know, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, this is about a heart posture. You know, a certain race of people are hurting. And they need to feel love. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. They need to know. They need to know. You know. And I, I, I my love tank got filled yesterday because yesterday was my birthday, and I was just really honored and touched. And my love tank got filled to see, you know, folks on there from SRC and just, you know, honoring me and you know showing me their love and all of that other good stuff. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's been a range of emotions, Darren. Um, and I just thank God that I believe in God. I try to really look for the best in all people. But I have to tell you, Darren, I've been, I've been heartbroken. And not seeing the, the, the rallying around you know, the African-American community, the black people in the church. And we're less than 1%, so it's not like it's a huge, <laughs> it's a huge effort, you know, that regularly attend SRC. Um, but to just reach out and say, hey, man, how are you doing? How are you feeling? <sighs> you know, I'm here with you. I'm praying for you. I love you, you know? So, yeah. Abby, that's so good, and thank you so much for for sharing that. And happy birthday! Yes, yesterday, <laughs> yesterday was your birthday, and it wasn't Arpana's yeah. birthday yesterday. I I, I wished her a, a happy birthday. You know, it's I wished a bunch of people happy birthday yesterday. And it turned out that that the only birthday that it was was yours and and Mady's and and, uh, and Dave Cusack. Yeah, yes, I yeah. we we had like a Holy Ghost moment on that Zoom because. You know, something happened to me, and I was praying over David Cusick, and I got like a, a, a fire bolt of fire in me when I said stealth mode and started praying in tongues. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. So, yeah, when I see him, I need to lay hands on him. 
<laughs> yeah, come on, come on. And Abby, and just responding, I mean, uh, your story is, yeah. is, is so sad because here on one hand, it's almost like when you came to America, it's, it was like you were oblivious to this whole thing of like skin color. It didn't, didn't really, it was just like, you know, and then all, all of a sudden it's almost like in America, it's like you were exposed to this thing of like, wait, what, why should my skin color matter? And why should I be treated? Like it was, it was so that's such a, uh, a sad part of, of your, of your, of your story there, you know, um, you know, you, you, you said something about like, I hope there's no racist, you know, at SRC and you know, that, that, and, and, and part of this might be a little bit of like an ungodly belief in me kind of speaking up, but you know, when it comes to humanity, I, I don't have a very, and like I said, maybe this isn't good, but I don't have a very like high standard on, on, <laughs> on humanity. Um, and that could be because of, of my background of, of, of some reformed theology and the doctrine of total depravity. And, um, but like, like, but I have a very high standard of our leadership team, uh, which, you know, I, 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 I have very high standard of our leaders, but not a very high standard when it just comes to, so like, and it's because of, you know, I've been pastoring now for 11 years. So it always like, uh, and believe it or not, I still have conversations where I get, where I'm shocked where I'm like, you burned what down, <laughs> right? Like, does anybody know? Like, like you know these like. And the reason why I bring this up is that um, that that there would be there would be people at SRC that would have uh, that would have um, uh, a superiority attitude within their own heart, whether it's conscious or subconscious. It would it would shock me out of the number of people that come to church at SRC that we wouldn't have any, and for that reason. This conversation is so important because people typically only live kind of with themselves, and even if they're married and they have kids, they just live in their own heads, and right. and they and very few people ever really listen to anyone. And so, for people that actually take the time to listen to this podcast, they're they're gonna have they're gonna have uh, uh, some time where they're gonna be outside of the shelteredness of their own environment, and they're gonna be exposed to some stories like yourself where all of a sudden they have to start asking themselves some difficult questions. It's like like these these moments where where I have to start asking myself some really big questions. And I don't think that we should be afraid of admitting if there's if 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 racism comes up in our own heart because I know in the culture it's like it's like the the worst sin ever and and God'll kick you out of out of Christianity or something. Like like I think that if something gets exposed throughout this conversation, if, if some ra- if some racist stuff starts to, if the Holy Spirit starts bringing that, hey, we need to give thanks to the Lord because now we can deal with it. And that's what I think. Um, I think that's one of the best things about this season is if, if somebody gets, if, if you see something, a racist tendency coming out of somebody, I don't think we should be like, you know, uh, you know, just, you know, throw, I, I mean, we should give, this sounds weird, but we should almost give thanks because, we, we, we heard all the prophetic words that 2020 was going to be a year of exposure, but we didn't see it. Right. We didn't see it coming like this. And the, right. the Lord reveals so that he can heal. And so as painful as all of this is, um, I believe that this stuff is coming up to the service within our country so that God can heal it. And it's and I'm with that. Yeah. And so, uh, so Abby, uh, I, I'm so sorry for just for all of this. I'm so sorry for your just your. Um, uh, just, just, just this conversation, and yet I'm also praising the Lord for you because I know that God has anointed you 
uh, for such a time as this. And, 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 and I, I totally agree with you. Like I've never heard any sort of victim thing come out of you. Uh, uh, I know that you're a woman who loves Jesus. You love people. And yet, and yet you're yeah. also, you also realize that there's the kind of honor that comes through honesty. And I really appreciate you contributing to this conversation. Abby, you're a, you're a real gift. Thank you. I want to um, jump over to Michelle. Uh, Michelle, I, I, uh, you sent us off a, uh, uh, well, I guess it was a Facebook message that, that we saw of something that you just experienced recently, but that wasn't really an isolated incident because um, you're continuing and, and friends of yours and this, 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 whole, this whole time is, is extremely, extremely messy. And uh, Michelle, I just, I just appreciate who you are and, and, how, you're, and how, how you're walking through this. It's, it's an honor to have you a part of this conversation. So uh, Michelle, if you just kind of want to bring us into, into, into your world and, and, and how this has been uh, uh, for you and your family um, the last few weeks. So I'm the mother of three black boys, the grandmother of three black boys and one black boy on the way. Um, I fear for them, you know, just going out to a drive, going out for a walk. I pray for them constantly that, you know, that they are protected. I didn't really fear for myself. I'm a female. I'm a black female. I didn't fear for myself. (laughs) Um, So Saturday I was at uh, Safeway on Madison on 23rd and Madison. And um, I didn't go into the supermarket because I wasn't wearing a mask. So I waited in the car and as I was waiting in the car, the windows were up at the sunroof part way open. This white man stood in front of the truck and started saying black nigger, um, MF nigger, black B-I-T-C-H. And I just kind of looked up like, is he talking to me? And his eyes got fixated on my eyes. And he, he continued to call me all kind of things, <laughs> black this, black that. One gentleman, an Asian guy walked out of Safeway. He slowed down a bit, but it was clear. He was like, I don't want to be a part of this. But there was another guy who drove up, a black man who drove up and parked next to me. He jumped out the car and he said, man, if you say nigga again, I'm going to kick your blank, blank, blank. And the guy's like, no, man, I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to her. And he points at me. And the guy said, that's even worse, right? So the Asian guy then walks back and he said, ever since I came out the store, he's been calling her the N-word. And the guy said, man, with everything going on at such a time as this, we just have marches up in this area. You want to try this? Is this what you want to try? And he kind of flexed on him like that and made the guy run down the street. So I opened the door finally and I say, what happened? And the guy said, I don't know, but I bet he won't be coming back here. But the thing I noticed, his eyes got walked in on me. And the first thought that came to my mind was, is he talking to me? Because I was just in the car scrolling through my phone. I just got done texting a friend. I chatted with a guy today. Similar thing happened to him. He was running in the Tacoma area and he runs early in the morning. 
And this woman, white woman, was at the gas station and started yelling at him, run, nigger, run, run, nigger. And he said when he looked at her, her eyes, same thing was fixated. And the first thought that came to him was, is she talking to me? It's a sad world right now to me that we live in. I think black people, we have had to fight. Our ancestors had to fight when they were trying to pull us off the continent of, when they were pulling us off of the continent of Africa, we had to fight then. Mm. We had to learn how to survive in inhumane situations in those boats. Some died, but were pretty strong. A lot of us survived. We had to fight when we were in the field when they wanted to strip our families apart and sell them to different people. We had to fight. We had to fight to finally get our freedom, what some would call freedom. We had to fight just for the right to vote. Right. Our black men or us, I can say, but let me talk about our black men. One could be educated the same as a Caucasian man he has to fight harder in his workplace, even to get paid equal. So it doesn't surprise me that this thing happened to George Floyd, that we are fighting. That is what we have had to do all our life from the history, from when we started getting pulled off the continent of Africa. We have had to fight. Is it right all the time? Hey, we've had to fight to survive. It's our way of survival, a lot of our way of survival. We fight to get our points of cross. You know, it's unfortunate that, again, I feel like there's something heavy going on. Uh, first, we had the COVID thing really strong, still is. And now we have the second pandemic coming with all of this. And we are still fighting. We're fighting. So I want to introduce Rhonda. Are you still there? Is Rhonda there? Banchero? Let's see. Let me text her and see if she's sure, here. I was sure. going to interview. Um, let me see. So um, I wanted to introduce my friend Rhonda Banchero. Um, she has a great story. Um, she has a. I see you there, Rhonda. Rhonda, thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for being a part of this conversation. And I totally know what it's like to, to try to do something like this with your kids, you know, and everything else like that. So thank you so much for, for being here and be willing to share your, your own story and your family's story with us. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're so welcome. And I'm so sorry. I'm, 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 I'm like doing like four things at once. Um, so yeah, no, I'm happy to be here today. And, um, you know, I've known Michelle for over 10 years, um, probably closer to 20 years. Our sons are close in age. They went to school together for a period of time. And, um, you know, Michelle and I have crossed paths several times through sports and school in the community um, because our kids are, are close in age. And so um, we've become friends, um, closer friends um, over the last year and a half, um, just through um, shared lived experiences and having two, um, you know, um, athletic teenage boys. So um, I have three children. Uh, my husband is Italian. He's um, so he is white presenting. Um, and I um, think that, you know, um, I understand. I, I've always lived here um, in, in Seattle, um, born and raised here. And I also 
um, played uh, basketball overseas for almost 10 years. And so um, my perspective, I think I've always had a pretty uh, wide open perspective as an African-American, just having uh, traveled and lived abroad um, and as well as, you know, um, the relationship and marriage that I'm that I'm in now for for almost 20 years, 21 years now. Um, And, you know, we had a situation where my son, who is um, looks like a black child, who looks like an all black child, um, was at a concert um, with one of his friends and he was uh, essentially to make a long story short he and his friend were pulled over at gunpoint um, by the sheriff um, and they had not done anything wrong um, their car was moving it was a summer night and they had their windows down um, the music wasn't uh, loud um, and uh, my son wasn't driving he was 15 at the time and um, the first um exchange with the officer was a gun drawn and literally the barrel touching the face of my son's friend who was driving. Wow. Now I have had, um, situations with the police. Um, we, we actually have many, um, police, uh, uh, officer friends, um, who we've had really great experiences with. They've coached our kids. I've actually coached their kids. Um, so, so, my son's experience with the police up until or law enforcement up until this point was uh, 100, 1000 percent positive. Mm. Um, the car was moving. So he came from behind. His lights were not on. My kids had done my and when I say my kids, I, I think his friend is my son, too. But, um, you know, they had done nothing wrong. So when you're approached by surprise, it'd be like you open your front door and there'd be a gun staring you in the face. You know, any number of things could have happened and could have gone wrong. Um, You know, we subsequently sued the sheriff and won. Um, But I think for this conversation, I think the importance and what I want to stress, and and it's going to differ a little from, I think, some earlier opinions, and that is that racism and race was born in this country. When I played in France and I played, you know, in China and I played in Greece, racism was born in this country. I had an experience with a a little girl in France and she and I became, you know, really fast, quick friends. And she couldn't tell you what color I was. She didn't know what color I was. She didn't even know really the question I was asking her. Because that's not something that she had been taught. It's not something that was in their society. It was more of a caste system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, religion and, 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 and affluence. But certainly not just judging someone because of the color of their skin. That was born in America. And it was a system put in place because we were brought here against our will. And the country was this country was built on the backs of immigrants. And so that was a system implemented to keep us at a lower level, a subhuman level, than the folks that had control of us at the time. And so I just want to, you know, I, I just want to be clear that I, I do not believe that black people are, can be racist. I believe that we can be discriminatory. Um, I believe that I believe that that's 
and, and kind of plain and simple. Um, but racism was born in America and it has been perpetuated in America and has bled into some other countries um, as a result of the permeation and the propagation of race being a determining factor in intelligence, in pain tolerance, in, um, you know, academic potential, in professional development potential, in, you know, just in every, you know, part of society uh, in America, race has bled into whether or not um, people of color, and specifically we're talking about right now, black people, um, are worthy of the same things that non-melanated people are worthy of. Um, so, you know, with that said, I think that because of my personal experience with our son, um, he was pulled over. They were pulled over in that manner because they were two black boys driving what the officer thought was a stolen vehicle. Hmm. When in actuality, the young man who reported the vehicle stolen a non-melanated gentleman um, or young young kid actually stole the car from his parents. Wow! And and they found out through iPhone or or, or some uh, who knows that he was at that concert as well. They took the spare key from their home, came to the venue, and took the car back. Wow! So all of this to say that all of the nuances that could have happened that night. So there were 100 things that could have gone wrong. And there were a lot of nuances that I won't get into that played into um, the totality of that, that event. But, but certainly you, you stop a moving car and, or you, you, you approach a moving car with your gun drawn. And, and by the way, law enforcement officers, I have asked and we have, vetted this and, and had deposition, they do not draw their guns unless they plan on firing it. So they do not, this is not cops and robbers is what they told me that they do not shoot to disarm. They don't shoot to disable. They draw their guns. Their fingers are on the trigger because they are trained that if you draw your weapon out of your holster and point it at somebody that you were doing that with the intention of shooting that person. And subsequently they are trained to shoot to kill because they are trained to shoot the biggest targets on a human body that is the chest or the head. That's it. So knowing that and knowing that my son and his friend were pulled over for, for nothing in their minds and startled, had he jerked the car forward? Had he turned the car to the left? Had he braked too hard? My son happened to have just picked up his phone when that happened. And when he heard the officer scream and yell, put your hands down and don't effing move, he dropped his phone. Now, my son is was 15. He's 17 now. He was 15 years old. He had never been behind the wheel of a car. So the officer was giving confusing demands. Get out of the vehicle. Um, take the keys out of the ignition. Mind you, he thought it was a stolen car. That was the report. So our kids had just 
knew that what you do is you show your hands and you make them do all of the things. Because these are the conversations that you have with black boys in America. You teach them not if a police officer pulls you over, but when a police officer pulls you over because mm. you know it's going to happen. Right. Wow. So you teach them that when it happens, this is what you do. And to put it into context, my son right now is six foot, 10 inches tall. <laughs> so when I started having this conversation with him, he was in the sixth grade and he was probably six, two at that time. And I told him at 12 years old, you were larger right now at six to 12 years old. You were larger than the average human being. Also, police officers or people in general think that on average, African-Americans, boys and girls, are four years older than they actually are on average. So now you put a 12-year-old in a six-foot-two body and they probably think he's a, a, a 18 mm. at the very least right. before you stop and look at his face and realize he has a baby face. So we were having that conversation with him three years earlier about when you get, when you get stopped, when you have an interaction with police, this is what you need to do. So when we subsequently went and talked to the attorneys, we were recounting, he was recounting the story to him and the attorney asked him, he stopped in the middle, in the middle of the deposition and asked him, why did you tell the the police how old you were? So jump back to the event when the police officer asked my son to get the license and registration as a passenger in that car in a stolen vehicle. My son, because I had told him, before you answer any questions, you tell them how old you are so they understand they're dealing with a minor. And so he did that. So... The lawyer didn't understand why, as Paulo was recounting the story to him, why Paulo mentioned his age first. So Paulo told him, because my mom told me that I need to tell people how old I am because they're going to think I'm older. And the lawyer got emotional. He's a white man. He got emotional because he has a son who's the same age as my kid. And he has never had to have that conversation with his son as a white kid and as a white a parent of a white kid. And so... The fact that there's even that disparity means that racism exists and it is entrenched in every part of our society. You don't learn about black history. You learn about slavery and you learn about civil rights in school. You don't learn about black inventors. You barely learn about black politicians early on. You don't learn about black Wall Street. You don't learn about the Hellcats. You don't learn about barely Tuskegee Airmen. You don't learn about anything that has to do really with positivity in black history in America, except for the fact that we are resilient and could take a beating. Wow. And I, and I went to school here. Wow. I went to school in Seattle. I'm from Seattle. And I didn't learn my true black history until I got to UW, University of Washington. And so until we can start teaching Native American history, and think about Seattle, you guys. Think about where we live. Almost every city that is in Seattle is named after a Native American, a chief. It was Chief Seattle, Chief Tacoma, Chief South, Puyallup, Duwamish, Tumwater, 
Snohomish, Skykomish, like it goes on and on. But our kids don't learn that. They don't learn that this particular region, the University of Washington and a lot of the land that we occupy parks are on our Native American land. They were Native American land to begin with. Our kids don't know that. And so until we can teach all of the history, because it's going to start with our young people. I'm 47 and I'm in this fight now because I've got kids and it's touched me personally and I'm passionate about it. But it's going to be my kids. It's going to be your kids. They're the ones that are going to carry this torch. And and the kids before, and my youngest kid, they're the ones that we need to be teaching them about all of the history because that's what's going to break down racism is for people to see that historically we've all been here however we got here. We've all been here working to make this country great. It's not just white people that have done great things. And that's what our kids learn. And so until we can un- unlearn that to them at the earliest of ages, we are going to continue to be in this spiral we're in. I believe that there is change coming. I have a lot of faith for this movement, and I'm 150% behind the movement that we're in right now. But I believe that if we start early and teaching our kids early that this country was built on the backs of immigrants and telling the truth so that when they see and hear things that in their minds they are going to start to think and decide and decipher, hey, that's not, that's not right. Black people aren't lazy. Latinos are smart. All Asians aren't necessarily the smartest people. Like, you got to break down those stereotypes. Because until we do that, that is what is being taught. Racism, racist thoughts, stereotypes, those are taught. You are not born with that. How do I know that? Because I've been all over the world and I've lived all over the world. And I know that those young people are not taught that. That is something that they are told or that they are taught that. I'm sorry. They're not born with that. It's something they are told. And when I talk to my friends who live abroad, who are Greek and who are Italian and who are Chinese, they're looking at us like what in Sam, you know, what is going on? What is wrong with your country? You guys have everything you possibly could want. The land of the free, the home of the brave, the most prosperous. What is going on with your country? How come we can't get it right? And it's because we refuse to look at our history and say that we were wrong about the way that we chose to teach it. And so it's when the protests start to slow down and this country starts to open back up, the real work is going to come when the change starts to, or is requested to happen in the boardroom and in levels of executive management. You gotta have a seat at the table. You can't speak on someone else. You can't talk about someone else. You can't assume, and you don't need to assume. There are people at every level of society. There are people who are worthy of, people of color, black people, Uh, who are worthy of being in the boardroom sitting right next to the CEO who are just as smart or maybe smarter. Those are the strides we're going to have to make so that it then trickles down until we start to have a seat at the table at the top and in the executive boardrooms, 
this discrimination that we're seeing, police discrimination that we're seeing, um, police brutality that we're seeing, all of those things are going to keep happening. Because it has to be that the power structure has to say enough is enough. That's all I think. Yeah, so good. Thank you so much, Rhonda, for uh, for sharing your story with us, and um, uh, I'm so thankful uh, just just for you. I mean, what what an amazing mom, and and how you uh, how how you equipped your your son. It's so unfortunate that you had to have those conversations, but I'm thinking of the countless young men um, that haven't been equipped. Um, you know, and, 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 and didn't know how to respond. And, and, uh, so you're, 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 you're an incredible, you're, you're an incredible woman, uh, but you're also an incredible mom. And that, and that really came through as far as your, as far as your heart there. And I'm so sorry for what you and your family have had to go through. I'm, I'm curious, uh, the, just with the intensity of the last, you know, it hasn't been really the last three weeks because I mean, this has been a very intense year racially. And you could even say probably a, a very intense. I mean, you could go beyond a year, right? But, but let's just say three years. I mean, we were we all cried when the current president won. I went to work and we cried. Yeah, yeah. As, as a unit, as an entire unit, we cried. So it's been an intense three years. And I think, not to cut you off, but I think that what people don't realize is when you have somebody in the highest office, even if you don't agree with their politics, we have, it's as, this is unprecedented that we've had a leader of this country promoting um, some of the um, incendiary, uh, racist, um, inflammatory language and ideologies um, that, 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 that he's, that he's doing. I mean, I, I think that that is something that is unprecedented. I think everybody is kind of frozen and nobody really knows like, okay, well, what do we do? Um, you get to it. I think we're numb to it now. Um, I think George Floyd and what happened in Minneapolis, Minneapolis, um, I believe in divine intervention that this happened during this time when we are all at home on our computers surfing the web. We can't go out about it. We can't go on about our busy lives in and out of cars. I'm a, a human taxi pretty much um, in normal times, but we have time because we can't be out having dinner and practicing and, and kids at, at athletic events and us having time with our friends and even, you know, church service and gatherings that we're all at home. And so this happened when we were all in a moment of kind of standstill and we all had an opportunity, an unfortunate opportunity but maybe there's a fortunate opportunity to watch and see how inhumane um, humans can treat other humans. And it forced us into action. I mean, you don't have a soul if you didn't react to that, good or bad, whether you agree with it or not. Their reaction needed to happen. And I believe that this is a modern day civil rights movement that we're in right now. Um, and whatever we do right now, is going to carry us for the next 50 years beyond my lifetime. And so we really have a responsibility for the next generation to teach them how to, it doesn't have to be the way it's always been. History doesn't have to repeat itself. That's right. That's right. 
Yeah, it's so good. And, and my question for you, Rhonda, is also the same question uh, for Michelle as far as processing through this with your children right now, uh, with your families. Like, what are what are dinner table conversations like right now uh, with, with 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 your family? Um, well, um, my son, um, who, who the experience happened to, um, and I'm sorry, I'm outside, so it looks like it's getting dark, but this is where I'm at right now, so I can't move. I can see you. But, um, my son didn't want to talk about it. So we, we gave him the, um, we, we let him know that we would not um, talk about it until he was ready to talk about it. Our closest friends knew my, our parents and, and the like. Um, but he chose to decide to talk about it because of what happened in, in Minneapolis. Wow. And he said, he felt like he had to say something because I think there was a, you know, like a, 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 a PTSD moment where he, it really took him back to just how close he was, I believe and, and he knows that I believe this, and I think he feels the same way now, how lucky he was that night. He, they, that officer chose, didn't feel like shooting two boys that night. Hmm. It, that's it. Like, it wasn't for anything that they did, which they did everything right, my boys did. It was because he didn't feel like pulling that trigger. That, that's it. And so I think that that took him back to that night, and I think it, it, it resonated with him, unfortunately, what happened. Um, I actually have only watched like 10 seconds of that video. I haven't watched that video. My son, being the young person that he is, he watched the whole thing. And um, so the conversations at the dinner table have been about what to do. Do you feel like acting on this for all of our kids? And they have really stepped up and decided that this is something that they think is important. So they have wanted to, you know, go to protests on their own. Um, and they see that as, as immensely as we are blessed as a family, we are very fortunate. Like um, all of my kids are in private school. We have good jobs. We travel when we want, we do what we want. So as immensely, as immensely as fortunate as we are, and really, Seattle is 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 Seattle is pretty uh, lightweight, even though we have a crappy police force nationally. We're pretty lightweight in in some of these heavy heavy issues, and you know the kids don't experience racism uh, like they would maybe in the South, or the Midwest, or deep in the East, uh, eastern part of the country. And so, for them to see it on their front steps, the protests and the activism, and also to see it around the world. I mean, we have all at the dinner table pulled up video of, you know, Auckland and Berlin and places where they're protesting by the tens of thousands because of George Floyd. Mm. And they're saying Black Lives Matter all around the world. Our kids don't see that here. We don't, as a nation, we don't rise up for other countries like that. Right, right, right. It's true. So we've just been talking about, you know, the importance of making your voice heard when it's when when the, when it's time and when it's appropriate. And if people are uncomfortable, that's okay. And if you hear your friends say things that make you uncomfortable, you need to call them out on it. And it might test your friendship. It might end your friendship. 
but you got to be willing to do that. And they've stepped up as I've stepped up. I've deleted some folks and, you know, uh, who've, who've said things uh, just yesterday. And we've all said as a family, like, we want to be around and associated with people who are God-fearing, we're Catholics, um, and who are about humanity, diversity, and inclusion, because my kids are biracial. They're Italian and black. My son, my oldest son is, uh, presents as a black man. He's my complexion. My younger two kids, Michelle will tell you, uh, are, uh, you know, look, look non-melanated and present as white if you're not paying attention. So we, we, we're, we're like covering the rainbow at our house. <laughs> um, shades. So, you know, they've committed to calling out racism, um, even if it's not directed at them. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, way to go again. And way, way to, 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 uh, to challenge your kids as far as to lean into the tension of those difficult conversations, knowing that that's really what love does, right? Love confronts and it doesn't, doesn't sweep things under the rug. Uh, but it uh, uh, really, there, there, there can't be reformation unless there's good, healthy confrontation. Uh, Rhonda, I also appreciate um, uh, that, that what you have isn't just complaints, but you, you're, you're looking at this very strategically and, and with a long-term kind of perspective, speaking into it uh, like uh, w- with some real constructive criticism. I, I, I really appreciate how you're seeing what's going to need to change um, and I really appreciate the input that you had there as far as that the change needs to happen from the top to the bottom, from the bottom to the top. And, um, and again, really appreciate you sharing your story here. And again, I'm so sorry for what you and your family have had to go through, um, knowing that this is not what God had in his heart when he um, said, let there be light. Uh, this is not what he had in his heart when he created humanity and his own image and likeness. And that this great, this great um, uh, uh, perversion of love, uh, racism, which is a, it's a, it's just a perversion of love, and it's such. Uh, I believe that pride is the is is you know it's the sin that God says that He hates. He says I hate the sin of pride, which is this place where we would elevate ourselves over others uh, because of uh, uh, something like skin color or uh, or and so many other so many other things, you know. And it's such an evil thing when when you have when you have a people that would use their skin color in order to elevate themselves over, and to and to also know that that's part of the history of our country, uh, as you were as you were sharing about and um, and it, through this time of us having to um, uh, to look at a lot of the things that are in the soil of our country, it's a it's a very humbling uh, or it should be a very humbling uh, time um, for for our country. And I would really encourage for everybody that's listening to this, I think that great humility and brokenness is, is a posture, especially for, for us white people as we're going through this, um, that, uh, that humility would be a great posture to have as, as we're processing um, through these conversations. So Rhonda, thank you so much again for, for your time and for sharing this and appreciate your family. I know that the earth will be better uh, because of your family. Uh, and because of of your parenting, I'm sure your I'm sure your husband is a champion as well. So thanks again for being a part of this. Thank you. And Michelle, I just wanted to go back to you really quick. Uh, how, how's your family right now um, in this in this season? 
So my family's good. My boys, unfortunately, we don't get to break bread over the same table. They're all dispersed, all in different, all three of them are in different um, states. So we keep in contact over family chat, um, over text, checking in, how's everybody doing? Um, Only one, my oldest is the one out protesting, teaching his little boys how to protest too, you know, um, so he's the one he joins that. Um, my youngest is gone. He's in Atlanta, kind of staying put and staying low. Sure. Um, Elisha is in Houston, and he's a little bit mellow. He'll, you know, blurt out some stuff a little bit to us and the family, but overall they're safe. Good. Um, I'm continually praying for them that they stay safe. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, for you, Michelle, awesome. You're an awesome woman of God and an awesome mom. And um, and I just always appreciate hearing your your stories, your your mom, your mama's stories, and and the the wisdom that you speak into the lives of your sons and uh, such a rich heritage there. And sure, sure, appreciate your own redemption story and just what the Lord has done in your own life and just looking at the trajectory of your sons. It really is awesome. Thanks so much for. For sharing, it's so good, and, and feel you. feel free to stick around and to, to speak into things as as we're going, or feel free to take off if that's what you need to do. So, okay, can you hear me now? Awesome! All right, Yay. <laughs> great! Now, awesome, Holly. Remind me again. You wrote your like your was it your your master's thesis on on, or you wrote a paper for school, right? On, Did I tell you about that? Oh my yeah, gosh! Yeah, and it was on it was on justice, wasn't it? You know, I don't remember the title, <laughs> but it was about it was me basically reconciling my my multi ethnicity. Um, I had a yeah, I so I wrote my master's thesis on that, and um, it really helped me to reconcile some things inside of myself. Um, I really, my, so my mother's African-American and my father is multi-ethnic and he presents, he presents to African-Americans at first glance, like a white man, maybe Italian. Um, He tells a story about a time when he lived in Florida that um, he was mistaken for a, a white male and they invited him to join a Ku Klux Klan meeting. Wow. Um, it's very intense and there's a lot of bigotry in my father just straight out. Um, he's native American when he is himself, he is a native American man. There are dream catchers everywhere and wolves and images of Indians on horses. And that is how he identifies. But, um, I'm just over the last maybe 10 or 15 years, I've had an opportunity to really develop a relationship with my father. He wasn't present in my life because he was he was in the streets when my mom and him met and um, his life was very toxic. And when I was born, my mother had to make a decision and she had to end the relationship and she married um, my stepfather and had two other children. Um, so she married a, an African-American man, man and my, my brother and my sister that came from that marriage they're they're a little bit darker in complexion, not by much, but there's all of this 
difference of complexion that has been the story of my life. And I've always had to be conscious of it. And it's funny because when I'm inside of myself looking out, my entire world was brown. But whenever, I guess, people looked at me, all they saw was white. And so there's this narrative of colorism that is just inextricably, you know, part of who I am. And I'm still trying to reconcile that. Um, and it took me, it took a lifetime. And it wasn't until I got to grad school, I really wanted to get to the root of it. I had a very hard time embracing my African-American-ness. Um, even though my mother was black, there were so many things that happened in our household that created tension. Mm. And and it it just caused such a divide between she and I. And that divide had a lot to do with how I defined myself racially. And um, she never knew. So um, let me see. When I left my home, I went to college in Little Rock, Arkansas. I grew up in Philadelphia. And then when I was 14, we moved to Delaware. And I left Delaware to go to Little Rock, Arkansas. And that was such a culture shock for me. Um, I went to, to study to become a sign language interpreter. And um, I'm sorry, let me backtrack. Before I went to Arkansas, I started a community college in Delaware. And it was the very first time that I had experienced institutionalized racism mm. because apparently being an interpreter is such an amazing career. It has so much income opportunity. It, it gives people who pursue this path so much freedom of their time because the way you, you are paid the, you know, it's not a nine to five unless you choose to, to work a nine to five. Um, and the income potential is so great and it's so much greater. It's like, it's it's been a secret for a really long time. And when I was in that community college, there was about 15 black people that I can remember in the sign language levels of classes. When I graduated into the interpreting program, I was one of like two black people. And I started to wonder what was going on. And some of my black classmates were coming to me like in tears saying, I got, I got called into a meeting and told that I wasn't smart enough to be an interpreter. And so this is that thing. Like I heard my mom tell me that when she was young, she was discouraged from going into whatever it was that she wanted to do because she was being discouraged by white people at that time that she wasn't intelligent enough to, to do that. And, and, it's one thing to hear it, but then it's another thing to like, it, it was like, wow, it, it was almost like passed down and now I'm experiencing that same thing. And so it was a real matter of determination inside of myself to to break, break free from that. And God opened an opportunity um, for me to go to school in Arkansas. I received, it was like a scholarship, but it was a grant. So for every year I was funded, I just had to work two years to pay it off, but my education was free. Awesome, wow. And I became a sign language interpreter and I became very humbled by being in the South. Um, it was in the South that I experienced another level of racism and, and colorism, and it was just compounding. Um, 
I remember I wrote a paper that had been pretty much unprecedented in my field. I was talking, so you know, when you watch uh, 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 something, maybe the president speaking, you see the little sign language in, interpreter in the bubble in the corner, you know, and, and they might be signing music or they, it might be a church service. That's a really big deal in, in, in interpreting. And there's a whole section of interpreting, like that people that just study music so that we can present it in the most visually accurate way that deaf people who can't hear the music can get the essence of it without ever hearing a note because of how we present it. And I was writing a paper on how to interpret rap music specifically freestyle rap. Oh. I know that you and Pastor Tony love rap. <laughs> <Come> on. <laughs> <laughs> so I was writing a paper on how the nuances of interpreting freestyle rap work. And, and it's funny because when I moved to Seattle and I met the man I believe I'm going to marry, he, he has a musical past and he, he's taught me so much more. And he actually helped me to realize that a lot of things that I I understood about rap were wrong because I wasn't a lover of rap. It just, it was because I was around it. I knew a lot more than most of the people around me did and I could speak about it, but he educated me a lot more. So anyway, it was the first time when I wrote that paper, I remember feeling completely deflated because my teacher, she wrote in red ink on the front of my, did you write this? I, I where are your sources. I, I really doubt that you wrote this. And it was like, whoa, are you are you accusing me of plagiarism? Is that what's happening here? Um, because she never took it, you know, to pursue like academic uh, punishment on another level. But for her to say that, hmm. it was like, did you write this? It was almost as if she was so impressed that she doubted I could write that well. But it was like the fact that she thought so little of me was a backhanded slap. <laughs> right. You right, know, like right. it was a backhanded compliment. That's what it is. And so I was dealing with this. And and so another nuance of I'll of I'll just interrupt you really quick. Uh you gotta send me a copy of that paper if you still if you still have it. I would I would love uh, that'd be amazing to read your paper on on signing rap music. That's that's so fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. I'll I'll look for it and and I'll I'll send it to you. Do Thank that. you for the intro. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, another part of um that experience. So I'm I'm dealing with that. So as an interpreter, one thing that we have to be aware of is our skin tone because we could, when we show up to a job, we don't know what the lighting is going to be like. We always have to dress in the way that will make our hands and our faces the most visually, you know, clear. So this shirt that I'm wearing right now, big no-no, if I was interpreting. Um, so that we were being taught, we were going to interpret for a camp of deaf-blind campers. And because they were deaf and, and they had visual problems, we had to even, we, we had to, if I could get away with wearing a Heather Gray shirt or sh shades of gray in a, in a, interpreting situation where the person could see just fine, but they were deaf. It, it was not a go in this situation for this camp. It had to be a stark contrast. And so while this is happening, I'm having a problem with some of my black students saying, you know, 
Well, Holly, you're only succeeding in the program because you're you're light. You are of a lighter complexion. Mm. And this is that colorism, that ugly colorism showing up again. Like, excuse me, like I'm not working my butt off to to prove myself in this program. How dare you just say that I I I'm just being I'm only passing because I'm I'm light skinned and I'm closer to white. And so while they're saying, while my black peers were saying this, while we were having this conversation about the deaf blind uh, camp and being prepared, there was a girl in my class. She was the only other black girl in my class and she was really dark. Um, so the teacher told her, you would have to wear a white shirt because that would be the most contrast. And she said, Holly, you too. And then she kept on lecturing. And I looked at her like, you, you want to try it again? You know, and, and she stopped and she, she was wondering why I was looking at her that way. And then she stopped and she realized it would be ridiculous for me to wear a white shirt. It does not contrast my skin like it would dark brown skin. And so the message I received from that is that I am lumped up with all the black students, according to this teacher. And so it was a conflict. Like wow. I was receiving wow. these two conflicting messages, one from my peers and one from my instructors. And it was deafening. And so I just had to kind of like do what I could to just get out of it. Um, and I graduated and I've been an interpreter for 20 years. Um, and I've been really, you know, interpreting has been such a blessing to me. I've been able to really explore my heart. And, and I wanted to understand myself. And so I started really diving into the Bible and Bible schools. And so it landed me at a Bible school um, that taught super, supernatural ministry. And um, there are a lot of people that, you know, you know, that come through there that are doing amazing thing in, 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 in all these countries. And people are, are being healed by the masses. And you just you get so inspired about what God is doing, but I kept hearing something and it was like, I wonder am I the only one hearing this? It would, it would be this nuance of the, the Christian testimony when you're going after God and you're, you're champion, you know, championing, 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 <laughs> you know, uh, a nation for God and it would be like, we're going to go into the streets and we're going to go into the, into the ghettos and we're going to go, we're going to go into all the poor areas. And it started to feel like, mm. why, why aren't we attacking the source of poverty as well as trying to bring revival? Because you realize that poverty creates crime and you know, crime begets crime and, and, and it, and everything that, you know, you start hearing when, when white people give testimonies now, oh man, we were in a really bad neighborhood. Ooh, when I hear that, it's like, it's an acknowledgement that you're aware of the, the difference. You are aware that you're going into a poor area and you may not be living in such a poor area. So why isn't the body of Christ attacking that? What are we doing to, to uplift the poor? And, and I mean, I feel like it's many ways to do that. I think activism and really having a presence um, 
in our state capitol um, to change some laws and um, and really just doing a lot of groundwork. But that started to really resonate with me. And and so f- as for how I'm feeling in this moment, I've been pretty silent about my feelings about Trump. I've been pretty silent about the things I've seen him say and the things he's done. And now I feel that it's the time to say what I feel. And what I feel, I neither hate nor love this man. I don't know him. But based on what he's shown, I feel that if I was God and I love my black children and I love my white children and my Latino children and the minorities are saying we have a problem, but my white children don't see it, I might raise up a leader who embodies racist, who embodies some racist uh, ideas and attitudes to put it on display. And I mean, in every way possible, really shove it in the faces of my people who are watching because that in and of itself is a turnoff. And I know a lot of white people that are like, Ooh, that looks ugly. I didn't know it looked like that. And I don't want to be associated with that. And if that's happening for this conversation, the race conversation, putting Trump in office was strategic and brilliant on God's part, in my opinion. Um, and so I feel like it's a great time. I feel that this conversation, I've been thinking about how I can protest. I don't I don't feel inclined to be on the streets, but I've been waiting for this moment to have this conversation across racial lines for a very long time. And it's happening. And I'm so excited and I'm ready to engage every opportunity it comes up because this is my peaceful protest to be heard and to hear and to bridge the gap. This is what I believe needs to happen. Um so I echo um, that. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I echo that. I echo that, Holly. Amen. This Thanks. is a peaceful protest. Yeah. In speaking up about the injustice and the the disparity which has been around for centuries. Yeah. So Amen. I'm right there with you, sister. I Thank hear you. you. Thank you. Um just briefly, I just want to say a couple more things and I'm, I'll be done. Um, I really, I had the opportunity to interpret. Interpreting has given me access to so much and I will be eternally grateful to this career. And I'm on a place, it's coming up on 20 years for me in October. So I'm looking to shift. Um, but as I look back, I, I had an opportunity to interpret for like a, it was like a racial awareness kind of rally and just people that just were pulling research about the history of racism. I was standing on the stage next to them interpreting that to the deaf community. And it just, it just moved me. Um, and, and ever since then, um, I, I interpreted these words and they say, normally when you interpret, you don't remember anything because it's about receiving the language turning it into something else and putting it out. But this stuck. Mm. And this woman said um, that the first police in this country were slave catchers. 
And we can't forget that. That is the legacy, I believe, is trickling, has trickled through the generations of the police department. And there, it's been very known in the African-American community that even though we know the Ku Klux Klan still rally and wear their sheets, by and large, a lot of them have traded in white sheets for blue uniforms. We have been dealing with that reality. I have come to church on many occasions and been uplifted by your message, Darren. You know, prophetically, when you don't even know you're speaking into racial matters for me. You know, when I'm battling fear, because I have a black brother, a black nephew, black cousins, you know, a black stepfather, the man I love is African-American. And I've had to, I've been wrestling with that fear that comes when, you know, another black boy dies senselessly. And this has been a buildup over all these years. Um, let me see. I think that I'm in support of a complete reconstruction of what we know as the police. Um, I, I think that it's going in that direction and I do support that. Um, we can have a conversation about that too. I, I don't know what it looks like, but I don't want it to be what it's been. It just can't be that anymore because if it's not fair for everyone, it's just not a fair system. And um, I think that's it. I think that's it. So thank you for allowing me to, to be here and, and thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so well, well said there, um, Holly, and just so appreciate just your, your journey um, as well as just your, your fascinating um uh, resume there as far as being uh, an interpreter for uh, you know for uh, for over 20 years I mean that's a sign language interpreter that's that's that, that that's that's amazing and 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 so well spoken on so many um, on, on so many different on so many different issues and looking forward in diving into some different kinds of uh, topics here um, at, at the at the end um, Want to jump over to um, Arpana? Arpana, thank you for for being on the call tonight. Appreciate who you are and and the grace that you that you carry, um, uh, and also appreciate just uh, your perspective that you're going to bring tonight. Um, that's going to be uh, needed in this conversation, and also a little different. And so, um, uh, Arpana, uh, what are you seeing right now? What are you experiencing, and what are you feeling? Wow. Wow. This has been such an intense conversation already. So I'm taking it all in and, um, you know, took a moment there just to reorient myself. Are you able to hear me? I generally speak very softly. So I tend, I need to project myself, I guess. Loud and loud and clear, loud and clear. All right. Okay. You might have to edit this part out. I'm sorry. I think I just lost some light here. All right. Is that better? It's perfect. Okay. It's perfect. Okay. Um, so, yes, this has definitely been an extremely emotional time. Um, it's also, th there's been a bit of a buildup in my own life um, in the way I've processed my origins and where I've come from and the message that I carry, my um, life story as well as my future. 
And it's it's been steadily happening over the past several years. And I think, um, I think it, it's kind of beginning to become more crystallized. I, it's, I'm, I'm able to look at things at a more granular level right now. And so in seeing what's happening around the world, I think at the very outset, I need to say, just like you said, I bring a different perspective. I'm neither white nor black. I'm American by naturalization. I was not born here. I look different. I sound different. I have a totally different culture. And therefore, everything that I that I see is from um, a different set of lenses from for most for most part of it. So I'm originally from India. I was I lived there um, till about 18 years ago. I've lived now in the United States for 18 years. And prior to that, I lived in the Netherlands for a very brief period of time. Um, <clears throat> So racism, um, by virtue of the fact that it's discrimination against uh, skin color, is not something that's new to us. We, as a culture, as the, the entire Indian subcontinent, and by that I'm including countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and Nepal and Tibet, Bhutan, that entire Indian subcontinent, along with several other Asian countries, started experiencing racism way before the United States was even formed. So we, as nations of the world, we have been so oppressed by the white man, and I don't like to say the white man, but that's pretty much what it was when the Europeans started um, colonizing various countries way before they even reached the Americas. So, but, but you know, in, in exploring this, one of the most common things that Indian people tend to do is to look back and introspect and say, okay, did it really originate with the Portuguese and the British coming and, you know, um, colonizing us? Or was there anything further to it? And, and the truth is that scholars have actually gone so far back in history um, that, that, you know, they've even started looking at the Indian mythology and the way we studied. And I think at the very, uh, at the very foundational level, it's what we look at as good and bad. We have historically, the human race historically has associated with good with light, white, bright and therefore beautiful and acceptable. And anything that's ugly, that's demonic, that's, um, you know, that's dark, that's bad, is associated with the dark colors. And so I think deep down at the psychological level, I think it has genetically been kind of, you know, passed down from generation to generation to associate dark with bad and white with good. Mm. And that's at a very, it's, there's, that's scientific. You know, there's, there's theories and studies to prove that, but that doesn't explain away our current situation in the world. That just points that it is really a hard posture. It is really something that, 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 that's far deeper than, you know, experiences uh, that we've encountered for the past, um, you know, past few years or hundreds of years. 
um, it's it's what what we're seeing now is a precipitation of several several issues. I think um, I think that said, I I like to I'd like to talk about my experience as an immigrant, and um, I believe I believe it's 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 pretty fair and truth you know true to say that immigrants in in of themselves are actually pioneers. People don't leave their countries and go to another country to explore and to, you know, try and make a better life for themselves unless they're pioneers. They're pioneering something for themselves and their families. And so there is a great element of courage to be able to do that. Even if it's a it's a golden opportunity and it's presented on a platter, essentially every immigrant who moves to another country gives up everything that they've that they've known, grown up with, their families. They're giving up their infrastructure. They're giving up their their social support system. They're giving up their entire way of life. And so that's pretty much what I did when I was about 20, 23 years old. And I moved here to the United States with my with my husband, uh, you know, then husband. Um, I moved here with four suitcases full of things. And that's all I had. And my suitcases, I think one suitcase was packed with my music. Another was packed with my books and my spices. That's all I carried, really. So when I because it's like it's like what else do you need, right? You got you got your music, you got your stuff for food, and come on, <laughs> right? So 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 that kind of was everything that I needed. And most Indian people, you know, they'll they'll bring along some uh, Indian um, cooking um, paraphernalia, like a pressure cooker. I did not even do that. <laughs> I needed nothing. I just needed my music and my books because. I was an aberration in 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 many ways because because I was raised on a steady steady um, supply of Hollywood and um, American literature, um, classic literature, and um, and also music. I was I was listening to music that none of my peers were listening to. I I grew up on Americana. I grew up on folk music. I grew up on so many things that are so deeply embedded in the American culture that for me, it was not difficult to just plug in, right? So the reason I'm telling you this is because despite me being as American in my thinking um, as all that, the challenges were beyond anything that I had anticipated. So in my mind, I was thinking, all right, I'm gonna land in the United States and we already knew, we already we already knew where we were coming. We knew we were coming to Seattle. We had over 20 people um, from India that were already settled here. And so we had a community. And so we knew that as far as the, as far as our native community was concerned, it was established, but I was a Christian and none of them were Christian. So I was obviously looking for community that, you know, that was that pertained to my faith. So I could get plugged into church. That was my priority. And so so I landed and I had all these Indian friends and they couldn't understand what had gone on in my life that I would choose to give my life to this Western God and give up everything that I knew. And so in my pursuit of trying to like, you know, all right, let me let me build a community that's organic to me. And so it should have been organic, but it wasn't, right? And that was my first taste of 
I don't want to use the word racism and in this context because I don't even know after all these years, I don't know if that's the appropriate word. I would say it's a culturalism, you know, at the, at the best, because I don't know if that was racism that caused people, because they didn't treat me badly. They just continually marginalized me. They just kept saying, you're brown, you're a woman, and I expect you not to be able to speak English. And therefore, I'm going to club you in this way. I'm going to just push you over in this direction. And that's where you're going to be. You're going to stay in this box because that's where I'm comfortable seeing you. You know, um, it took a long while for me to break out from that. And again, like um, uh, there's something that I wanted to mention, just like Abby mentioned early on, that I am this is none of this is coming from a place of woe be me and look what I went through and this has been such a struggle. So I've never felt like a victim because I've always looked for opportunities to just kind of bounce out of that, learn from it, keep moving. That's my personality as well. And so, so it was very hard for me to um, even look at it as a pain point really. Rather, all right, so this is the issue. I need to, I need to work through it. So how can I, how can I move along? Um, my very first experience um, of of actual, uh, like you know, you're brown, and this is where I want you to be, actually happened at the church. Um, and this was a church that the Lord had, you know, it, it was like the way the Lord pointed me to this church was pretty divine, um, in its in of itself. It was um, a nearly a six month process. Um, of just seeing various signs and wonders and just, you know, connecting the dots and eventually getting to this place. And so when we got there and we we attended a couple of times and I said, all right, this feels like home. This is, this is where we're going to go. And um, one of the leaders uh, invited me to the ladies' Bible study. And so I went on uh, the designated day and she saw me from a distance and she was thrilled to see me uh, that I'd accepted her invitation, a wonderful white leader. Um, and so she, she hugged me and she said, she led me inside and she took me straight to this one lady. And while she was walking me to that lady, she told me that I know the perfect person for you to get connected with. You're gonna love her. She's an amazing person. So I had no preconceived ideas. And in fact, it did, it did not even, this whole thing, this whole scenario did not occur the way it played out to me until nearly three or four years later when the lady that I was speaking to actually pointed it out to me. And that's when it was like, oh, that's what happened. So, so I was led to this lady and introduced. And um, as it turned out, she was from South Africa. Um, and that was like a soul connection for me immediately because um, I have a deep heart connection, deep love for South Africa and South African history. But not many people understand this about South Africa and apartheid. But in South Africa, there are actually four races. It's not just black or white. In between black and white is the spectrum of Indians, Indians who immigrated you know, 400, 500 years ago were taken there in slave ships, but not, not to be slaves. The Indians were taken there to work and to, to be merchants. But in between the 
Indians and the coloreds uh, uh, or the blacks and the whites is another race called the coloreds. Now the coloreds are um, a, a product of blacks and whites, you know, getting together. And they are treated poorer or lesser than the Indian people. So this, this was something, this was knowledge that I was mildly familiar with and I had studied it. And so when I got introduced to this, this to this, um, to this colored woman, the, a connection sparked. And so through her, I became part of the South African community in, in, the, in the east side of Seattle. And a majority of my friends were from the South African community. So I had my Indian community, I had my South African community to such an extent that they embraced me and they would, they almost, they, they would call me the honorary South, the honorary South African because I was the only Indian in that community who was not from South Africa. <laughs> right? So now I'm like, I'm a hodgepodge and, and, and that's actually reflected even in the way I speak. My accent is not entirely Indian. Right? I don't sound American. I don't sound South African. I, I don't know what I sound like. I sound like me. Right? And so I had my South African community, I have my Indian community, and I'm still looking for my organic, the, the, what I want to be organic. I'm still working on that. And that was, I think, where things just became the hardest for me. It, it left me so depleted emotionally because I could not understand why a, a white friend would not invite me to their house. I could not understand it. And I, you know, it's every time in the, in the past 18 years, I can say that a majority of the people who meet me for the first time, their questions go down in the same um, path. Where you learn to speak, things have changed a lot, um, you know, especially in the past 10 years. But, but where you learn to speak English, um, were you always a Christian? Um, can you tell me where a good Indian restaurant is? And when those conversations have, when they've gone past those conversations, it's like, um, we'd love to taste some curry. You know, I would love, so, so basically there all the hints that are, you know, that is typically dropped um, to say, hey, have us over, you know, and, and I, you know, up until a few years ago, I used to be very hospitable. I, I, I don't, in, you know, invite people a whole lot more into my home anymore because invite people, you're expecting relationship. You don't want to be treated like a restaurant. And the Indian way of thinking and hospitality for an average Indian is that you don't even wait for someone to invite themselves to you. The moment, this is across the board all over the world. Indians are known for their hospitality. That the moment you say hello, hi, the next thing you're talking about, we'd love to have you over for tea. We'd love to have you over for coffee. Or let's go somewhere else and meet. So, so it's, it's, it's a very integral part of our culture. So we tend to be very open-hearted, inviting people into our family. And for people who are here without any family, that's also their way of saying, hey, I'm seeking acceptance and I'm seeking to build relationships here. So can we bond over this? Right? And regardless of religion, 
you're going to see that. You're going to see, you, you can expect that from brown people, whether they're Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or Jain or Sikh or, uh, or Christian for that matter. So for me, that, that, that kind of, you know, that need was so, um, it was so, while I had my two, you know, main communities, there was still this part of me like, wait a minute, I want to be able to have deep, meaningful, Bible-related conversations. I want to talk about Jesus. I want to hear about your life. And I want you to know about me because I did not come here by accident. You know, God sent me here for a reason. So I want to know how I can integrate into your life and how you can invite me into mine. And that. And I echo that as well. <laughs> I echo that as well. I, I have to chime in there because it's it's a cultural thing. And it's and I could say for, for being a West Indian black woman, a West Indian black family, it is precisely what our Arpana is articulating is like, let's go deeper in relationship and it's around food and it's not about just being uh, a restaurant, but going deeper in relationship and crossing the lines and sharing and exchanging. Thank you, Abby. So, so there was one interesting observation that I made. There was actually a time um, I had been living in the U.S. for about two or three years at that time. And um, I was in a, in a sort of a bad situation. Um, um, and I, I knew one black lady in the church. And I knew several others, but I wanted I wanted to reach out to someone. And my intuition, my instinct was to reach out to this black woman. And so I just called her and told her, I just need to be away from my, my spouse now. Um, I just need to, you know, I just need to get away. Um, I don't feel safe. And it was... I think the most amazing experience of my life, because she came, she picked me up, she took me over to her house, she fed me, and she put me down for a nap. And I slept for maybe five hours in her bed, not in the guest room, I slept in her bed. And when I woke up, no questions asked, I got the hugs that I needed, I got the loving that I needed, I got the praying that I needed. And she said, are you ready to go home or do you want to stay here for a long, a little longer? And, and that to me has been one of the single most defining, um, you know, experiences of support and what it should look like. Because of all the people I knew, my, my Indians, my South Africans, the few, you know, um, white people that I knew at the church, people that I prayed with and, and, you know, sat down and did Bible study with, of all of them, she was the only one that I felt comfortable enough to reach. And I just kind of made a mental note of that, and I've kept it aside, and it's still something that I have to unpack, but there is something about the family and what, how family life is lived out that we, that is so beautifully portrayed in, in certain cultures. And, in, and, and and I'm not, again, I do not want to um, make a generalized statement about whites or blacks, but at that moment, for me, that was my experience. Um, and I have seen wonderful, beautifully formed families 
you know, from all races, and I've seen dysfunction as well in all races, right? But um, but that one experience is what made me feel like there was hope for me to actually have relationships. I think up until that point, I was still debating if I could continue living in the United States, if, if, if really it was God's will, because we'd received prophetic words before we moved here that we are being sent to the United States for a specific purpose. So up until that point, I did question everything. But see, all of this, what I'm, what I'm talking about happened 16 years ago. I had lived here only for two years. And so since then, I made it my mission to say, all right, I'm, I'm not going to act victim. I'm not going to say, oh, there's no one inviting me. I'm going to be proactive about this. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to do this. But, you know, it's been, it's been tough. It's, it's been tough. I'll say that. Because assimilation is something that cannot happen once. It cannot be a one-sided effort. It cannot be that people who come from other countries have to assimilate into, um, into you know, culture here and contribute to society because every one of them whether they whether they're doctors or whether they're um, whether they're technology workers or whether they moved here in the 70s and set up the restaurants and became majority of the cab drivers in this country people who come from those countries you know they have assimilated they have contributed to the society and you cannot be stereotyped of a culture to be, you know, Punjabi restaurants or, you know, the, the very the various stereotypes, right? So, um, and at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to point fingers. I'd like to keep saying that, please, tell my heart as I say this. Because the reason I'm saying this and I'm speaking and I want the church, the, the American church, and not just our church, but you know, the church overall to hear this is because we are truly called to be a city set on a hill. It's in red, it's, it's in the Bible. We are supposed to be the city that's set on the hill. We are the people who are supposed to be foreseeing situations. We cannot wait for things to explode and become out of control before we step in to say something or do something or be the hands of Jesus. And as I sat and I processed everything that's gone on with with the whole um, with, with the whole episode, way before George Floyd, did we not have opportunities? Of course we did. Of course we did. Because as I was a few days back, as I was looking through my my Facebook profile pictures, and I saw from 2014, I think, or was it 15? I've lost track. Multiple. Facebook profile pictures, and one of them said, I can't breathe. So this whole, I can't breathe, even my own, my own memory, you know, I've lost touch of it. Because I can't breathe is not the first time that someone died, and that was their last word. It's happened before. It's happened before. We had protests, and we had conversations, and the whole world came out in the arms. There was criticism and condemnation made by the rest of the world against the United States, saying, you guys, you want to come and you meddle in our, our affairs, go fix your own problem in your own house, man. But, you know, so we are. Longer and heavy, I do apologize. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't apologize. Really, really good. You pointed out so many uh, great points regarding the amount of work uh, that people of color have to go through when they immigrate to the United States. 
um, a lot of the stuff on the victimization was 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 excellent as far as people not uh, possessing the tools that they need to be able to process through this conversation of of uh, of racism and um, and if you don't have Jesus um, it makes it even more difficult it's not that it's impossible but that um, when you come to uh, to subscribe to Jesus as your Lord, and the pillar of your faith is one who hung from a tree, uh, mm-hmm. a victim of a victim of humanity, and there on the tree, uh, uh, takes on the posture of an intercessor. Uh, certainly is certainly is helpful, and and yet still um, uh, still such a great challenge for people that go through injustice, no matter what color, to be able to process through that. Um, and be able to be able to come through victorious is still such a huge, huge challenge. Um, and then also such great points regarding um, generational trauma, and um, and relating to what uh, what 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 uh, people of color must be going through right now within our within our na- within our nation. So thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to expound on those points. It was really really good. Um, Victoria Gordon, thanks for uh, thanks for hanging out and. Um, uh, really uh, eager to hear um, how you're doing and what this what this season's been like for you. Yeah, um, you know, I guess I'll kind of start to the video, really, you know, um, and kind of share a little bit more about my background and, and kind of my upbringing and and how that kind of pertains to my <laughs> what I've been feeling the last couple of weeks. Um, so, you know, as everyone has probably watched, um, you know, George Floyd's video and, um, you know, I watched that video and I immediately cried, you know, and I know so many of us had cried. And um, that evening I had never done this before, um, but I, you know, was talking to my dad and I just said, Dad, um, has this, have you ever been pulled over? Has this ever happened to you? Um he, he's mentioned it on and off a little bit. And so he, he did explain, yes, this did. And before I'm going to share his story, um, I'm biracial. And so this is actually a really, um, sometimes I feel like if you're, if you are multiracial or biracial, it's a really interesting time because you're, you've had, um, depending on your upbringing, you know, so many different perspectives. So my dad is black and my mom is white and, um, so I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood in Kansas and, you know, had that experience. But I spent summers with my grandma in Alabama and that was my like African-American family, you know, and, and would visit my mom's side of the family sometimes, too. So, you know, I've had a lot of different perspectives as far as these cultural kinds of differences or, or you know, um, and in race and experiencing that with my parents, um, and, and what that looks like. And so, um, I was thinking through my, my upbringing and being in Kansas and, and how I was, you know, wasn't exposed to a lot there. And, and I've been recounting some of my own experiences of in high school, someone saying, Oh, well, you're not, you know, um, you're not like them. And Mm. they were referring to the other, the, the black kids in my school. And, um, that's really personal because I was like, well, you mean I'm not like my family, you know, that's not, you know, you're, you're talking about my family. And so, um, you know, being, being biracial and being light, lighter skin, we, you know, sometimes that, um, 
there's sometimes I've seen those instant those insensitivities to people's um, reaction to that and, and kind of, you know, um, who I am as a person and maybe not in sometimes not even knowing what my ethnicity is. I can sometimes, oh, you look Puerto Rican or Cuban or something like that. And so they don't really know that sometimes those things are you're not talking about a certain people group or a certain race. You're really making it personal because you're talking about people I love. And on whatever it is, you know, um, good or bad, if you're, it's white or black, it's, these are, these are people that, um, that are my family and that I love. So it brings something very personal that we sometimes want to be, you know, kind of segregate. But for me, it's not black or white, it's black and white, you know, that is who, who I am. And so, um, to go back to my dad's story, um, him being a black male and, and, um, you know, he, Grew up in Kansas. We grew up, we're in a nice, you know, neighborhood. It's predominantly white. You know, my dad has a great job. He's a super nice man. Everyone would like. He's a great guy. And um, it was three in the morning, and he um, was out on a work call. He does a lot of stuff for his job, um, and so he, he drives a work vehicle. And so, um, and he was getting McDonald's, pulled out the driveway. And the cops pulled him over. And he was like, you know, okay. And they had gotten a call that there was a robbery at the 7-Eleven. And he fit the description for this man. And so, um, you know, my dad was like, well, you know, he, you know, they're like, can we search a vehicle? And he's in his work car. He has his work computer there. You know, this is like within the last 10 years. So it's not like, you know, many years ago, um, and so, you know, he gets out and goes and sits on the corner and he said, yeah, I just sat on the corner and ate my burger and, and, um, just told them to put everything back to where they have it, you know? And I think that was the first moment that I realized that, um, oh my gosh, what happened could have been my dad, you know? And I think that, that kind of realization of, um, that emotion kind of was like, whoa, this, this could have been my this could have been my dad. What if my dad was not in a good mood or, you know, what if these, someone was aggressive, you know, cause just knowing my dad's character and, um, just the kind of person he is and not just beyond that. Right. You know, we're like, but, um, it, it really brought it home to me. And, and so I've spent a couple weeks processing and kind of not really, not really sharing a lot of things in a, in a sense, because it's been very hard to, I've always kind of said, it's actually hard to kind of reconcile, um, sometimes maybe Holly can kind of, you know, I know she talked a little about this, you know, reconciling this, but in one way you're like, okay, I remember being really young in elementary school and thinking, okay, this is weird. Like one side of my family was slave owners and one side of my family was probably slaves, you know, and I love them, you know, and they're, they're very much a part of my culture and I'm part of their culture, you know, in that. So, um, you know, and, and uh, not everyone was super happy when my parents got married, but, um, but my, so I, I'd also ask my dad, can I share these things? And um, so anyway, all that to say, it's been such an emotional time and, um, and such a like reflective time. And I think for a lot of people, and I feel like even from, you know, I think sometimes we've tried to kind of um, filter things down to these you know, ideologies that are really clear cut, right? It's either you're this or you're this, you're that and you're that. Um, and um, 
you know, for someone who's a mixed race, you're like, well, it's not because I, these are, there's a lot of, um, you know, my perspective and my, um, you know, it's very personal, you know, when, when you're, when you're attacking something or attacking someone, because it, it takes it away from, um, where you're kind of saying I'm part of this people group or I'm part of this people group because I firsthand can see how my parents through their marriage, you know, um, to me, it, you know, they've, um, a lot of the family has been in a way now they, they have this love and respect for each other that wasn't there before, you know, and, um, not all my family. So I'm not going to say that, but I'm just saying that that was not everyone was, ooh, you know, <laughs> um, so so it's been really interesting from that perspective. And um, I had someone that I saw a message on someone who said that they were multi-rate, they were biracial. When they were younger, they felt like they had to, someone said they had to um, pick, you know, pick a, pick a race, pick a side. And so that they said they picked white. Wow. And she goes, now, um, because she sounded white, which is another thing that you can get, you know, if you're, whatever, um, that happens, you know, whatever that means, you sound white. Um, and, um, and so anyway, now she, she, um, recently posted that she, uh, now after everything, she goes, well, I did realize that girl, it was right. And I need, and I choose black. And Mm -hmm. that was actually really hard for someone who is biracial to see another person of mixed race say, whoa, 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 whoa. How did we get to this? How did we get to this point? You know, where it, there should be, you know, a unity in a way where um, where we there's empathy and there's compassion for for what's happening and people's experiences, but um, not so much, you know, so that um, there is sustained change. But um, it was really shocking and alarming to me to see that the other day that I said, oh, my gosh, someone feels like they actually have to disassociate from part of their own identity, um, that was really hard. So I'm figuring that out. I'm reconciling with that in a way of, but, you know, to me, I'm like, oh, no, no, don't do that. You know, that's, we are, we're, we're beautiful representations, I feel like, of, of, um, you know, love coming together to create something different that doesn't really fit a check box or check mark, you know, and that's something when you're growing up in your story, you can't really check you know, you're like, why can't I check all these other boxes? You know, you only give me one option. Um, for a little more, <laughs> I remember thinking that in elementary school. I'm like, oh, why can't I check check both boxes? Why are you making me pick one box? Um, because it's not who I am. And um, you just kind of have to default to whatever. Well, I'm, I guess I look more black, so I you know click that one. But um, but yeah, all that to say, like you know, I just I feel like there's an opportunity to you know for for myself and for so many of us just to kind of lean into the tension of things. Um, I, I think that, you know, I can, um, because I am lighter, um, in, in some ways there is sometimes a privilege of, and I, that, that I know we've kind of talked about a little bit, you know, and, and people have touched on that. Um, but it is very much part of our, our up exposure and I did have you know a lot of that upbringing but um I feel like there's a choice where I can remain comfortable and say oh I'm not directly impacted in this you know I'm not 
you know, I haven't necessarily had someone that this happened or it doesn't, I don't have to worry about it happening to me, you know, um, but realizing that it is something that could have happened and that it is a real experience um, that I just kind of, um, I don't know, I don't really know why I didn't really ever think, um, it's almost like I did know that these racial disparities, because I've seen them. So for some weird reason, it became like a normal where you're like, oh, this is just what I've seen. So, of course, this is happening. But I've never had that connection that um, this this person, it could be really real. It could be my dad. So it's kind of, I feel like bringing that empathy and that compassion and that understanding of thinking like that could, what if that was your dad or what if that was your brother or what if that was your son or something like that brings that element where um, it just makes things a little bit more, um, it takes something that's an ideology and it brings it back down to the human aspect of saying that's a human, that's a person, you know, this is a life and um, I can, you know, let me try to empathize with you and try to have a compassion for for you and what you're experiencing. And, um, and, and that's kind of what I think has pushed me from being someone who's not going to have something to say into saying, no, I'm going to choose to step into the tension. It's going to be uncomfortable. I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. You know, I have my experience and my voice and um, ultimately my love, you know, for people and and hoping that that could help, you know, encourage people to, to do that because it's not something that's comfortable and it's not something that, you know, we can use this time to step back into um that comfortable isolation and, you know, use that as, a, as an excuse to, you know, kind of disengage in what's happening instead of really stepping in and saying, I'm, you know, Lord, I don't, you know, let me help understand. Let me learn from people, empathize with people. And then what's my part, you know, cause I can't say what, what you should do or what you shouldn't do, but really asking the Lord, like, what's my part? What's your part? What are all of our collective parts? Um, that can really not, um, you know, not escape. <laughs> Darren, I'm just going to quote you. Not escape, not attack, but really garden. And um, I do feel like the gardening of saying, yeah, you know, those other two options are super easy to do, right? Um, but the intentionality to garden, to weed, to pull out something, to, you know, um, take away the bad things, you know, to plant the good seeds, to water them, to... You know, and every person has a different role in that process of gardening, you know, and so or everything has a different um, part into the garden. So um, and it's longer, you know, it's long term and it's messy and it's not going to, you know, there's going to be, yeah, dirt and, and all of that. And um, but to, to be able to see really sustained growth and so really focusing on yeah, all of that, you know, the building part of you know, weeping with those who weep right now and then saying, Lord, what is my part? How can I build something that's, that's different? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So well said. Thank you so much, Victoria, uh, for sharing that, sharing the story about your, your, uh, your dad, uh, as well as, um, uh, just getting your perspective and, and just kind of getting to, to be in your shoes just a little bit is uh is is incredibly helpful as well as um kind of your redemptive processing as far as as far as um and i I would imagine that a lot of people will be definitely empowered by uh by hearing how your 
how you're processing. I think that it's like that for everybody on here is we're getting to hear how 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 everyone's processing through this, and it's and it's different for everyone on here, and for some people uh, 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 on here, there's gonna be um, um, look more like grief perhaps, and for others it might look more like anger, you know, um, and all of these different in, uh, responses, you know, are are appropriate right now, um, and I think it's it's really helpful just to hear how how all you guys are. Processing and working through through this with with Holy Spirit, um, I really appreciate uh, Pastor Anthony uh, uh, being on here as well as well as uh, Pastor Anthony's um, courage to instigate and catalyze uh, conversations at Seattle Bible Center on this issue of 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 race, racism, um, and the uh, and the um, the richness that we have as a as a church community um, when we're willing to protect the diversity of our of our church community and that's one of the things that I, I see Pastor Anthony uh, ferociously but lovingly and humbly uh, attempting to do right now at Sierra Bible Center is to protect um, is to protect our diversity uh, because it's not something that we're willing to lose it's something that uh, that that it's a 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 critical value if we want to be a, a heaven on earth community then it's something that we've that we have to be willing to fight for um, that we are a church for all nations and so uh, Anthony thank you so much for um, uh, I know that you're not hosting these conversations you're not doing anything because it's what a pastor is supposed to do or something like that uh, I know that what you're doing you're doing you and Rebecca because you're you're passionate about this topic and it's not actually a topic I know that you're doing this because you're passionate about people and uh, and I really appreciate it. so I'll, I'll go to you bro thanks bro and I uh, Pastor Darren appreciate you um, just seeking um, out all of these amazing voices to um, and create a platform thank you for for doing this this has been an honor just to to sit and listen. I've been taking notes on just some of the things you guys have said, and um, it's been humbling to listen to, you know, um, and I think what I've appreciated are some common threads that I've noticed through a lot of what's been said, um, you know, uh, and and definitely appreciate that. I, I just wanted to kind of highlight um, just some of the things that have stuck out even in this conversation tonight. So, um, you know, one of the, the veins that has really gone through this is just the amount of effort. Uh, you know, Michelle really kicked this off in a lot of ways by saying we had to fight for all of the rights that we have. Um, or even if he is educated the same, he has to fight for equal pay. This place of energy that needs to be put in by people of color to, um, to in a sense, assimilate as a... Uh, um, Arpana highlighted assimilation shouldn't be a one-way thing. That assimilation is something that um, should work for everyone because that's the well, really the supposed to be the root of our our country. Um, but I appreciated what um, Rhonda highlighted. She highlighted a lot of the the history and the roots of our country and how a lot of um, a lot of racism has formed a lot of our country. And, and I appreciate that contrast between um, uh, 
France and America and, and all of those things and um and just the experience her son had to walk through. You know, it's um personally I when I was um in grade school, my dad pulled me over, he said, Hey, I wanna talk to you and your sister and he said his girlfriend um was black and uh and she got pregnant and um and he said I want to talk to you guys because you're going to have a little sibling and they're going to be treated differently than you guys are. And and that was like the first time that it really like clicked in me that there was even a difference. And I and I um, I was I didn't get it, you know, because kids don't get racism. We don't understand that. Uh, we you know, as was mentioned, we learn that it's a learned behavior. And, and I think what we're doing it as a church is as the church is is. By confronting these things, we're learning to unlearn these things that don't come from God. They come uh, from systems that the enemy wants to use to keep us separate. And um, and so I went to college. I uh, I um, I got into a program through the through EOP um, or the Office of Minority Affairs. And you might say, "What? You're not uh, a minority?" And I was. I got in somehow because I was low income, and um, and uh, so they lumped in um, uh, me in there, which I felt really privileged by because we had a thing called the fishbowl on the first night of our program, and they said, okay, everyone who identifies as being black, get in the middle, and we're going to have you guys have the mic, and everyone's going to sit and listen. Okay, everyone who's Asian American, get in the middle. And... We would go, we go, we go. We spent this time listening, and there was such a bonding that happened through listening. And I feel like, um, you know, I, and I made friendships for life through the Bridge Program, um, which ironically I feel like I'm uh, wanting to try to be in this place is, is a bridge to try to um, to uh, be a voice to say like, hey, we we need. We need to listen. We need to take time to really humble ourselves. I went on Sunday with my wife, um, and just a quick uh, highlight to my wife. My wife is a quarter black. Her mom is half black, and um, and I don't say that to qualify her or anything. I say that to say when she came to America, because she's Canadian, um, and she basically said, look, I look white, so I can't really identify as black. I can't. I don't get to do that. So... I'm going to have to choose, you know, so I can really appreciate Holly and Victoria, that place of that intersection between white and black and not ever really maybe feeling like you're a part, you know, or, or that place of, of feeling like you're, um, uh, torn always. Um, but, or even, uh, Arpana, that place of highlighting, uh, colors in the South, uh, in South Africa, that place of, uh, you know, it was just like really. I really appreciate your guys' perspective because there's so much to that that comes just from um, uh, this place of belonging and and uh, and and the difficulty of maybe not feeling like you belong by having to walk through that. Um, uh, but I just wanted to highlight my wife. You know, she's going through everything that we've been going through. We went to a march on Sunday, and we went to a march in South Seattle, and. Um, uh, I found out later that some friends of mine had organized it, and I and I, um, as we were there, you know, she was just talking about, hey, like, um, this is it's stirring up a lot because um, 
not having to ever talk about it because if you identify as white, you look white, your tree is white, you can be insulated in, in a white um, this culture, per se. And you don't have to have these conversations on a regular basis, but it's stirring up all these things. And um, so we went on Sunday to a march, and it was beautiful. And we got to hear, we got to listen. And, um, and yeah, th there was talks of defunding the police. Um, there was also my friend who was, uh, uh, my friend Sean Good was interviewed by King Five as the march was happening. And he said, what we need to understand is, is that the, as what was highlighted um, by Holly, just the roots of policing it, and just that place of there's, um, there's uh, a system that over polices um, black community, you know, and, and, and just the disproportionate rate in which um, uh, black men are, are incarcerated is something that needs to be addressed, you know? And so like, there's just a wave of things happening. And so my wife and I felt it very necessary to just say something um, because us as a church, I really feel like it's, you know, I thought this the other day and I was like, oh, this might sting if I said it. And I wasn't trying to just sting it to say it or be like whatever. But I think a lot of people have a problem with the Black Lives Matter movement because it uh, of its political nature and, and um, all of these things. And I get that. And I'm not in agreement with all of the Black Lives Matter movement because of all of that. But guess what? Like, if the church would have been saying that Black Lives Matter then we could have been the one to lead this movement. But we we weren't. And now we are coming to the conversation now. And I feel like I feel like now it's it's uh it's in a sense a bit of catch up because um and and we had a another march on Wednesday in White Center and um and some uh some awesome SRCers came out um and uh and there were a lot of things said at the march, and uh, and I just w want to shout out one of the guys that came. He just said, I'm so glad I came. Um, I was so uncomfortable. I didn't uh, want to be there, per se, because I don't normally go to White Center. And I, you know, and I, and I, you know, I, he had a lot of preconceived notions, but he confronted those, and he marched with everybody, and he said Black Lives Matter, and he said, you know what? I bet the Pharisees, when Jesus was around, had a very clear thought of what they thought it meant to be a believer, what they meant to be a Christian when Jesus was on the earth. But he showed them that they didn't they didn't see the whole piece. And and I, I just felt really blessed to see that there there is some growth there. And I think that's where we need to spend a lot of our energies. Is, it's confronting our own hearts in any areas where we, we feel like we want to be separate or or where we're okay to not engage. Um, I think we all need to engage. And I, I think about the Good Samaritan and uh, and Jesus was asked, who is your neighbor? And, um, and he tells a story about a man that was beat up and left on the side of the, um, of the street. And a priest came by, a Levite came by, and they both passed him, and it was the Samaritan who stopped. And the Samaritan was the most marginalized person in 
in society at that time. And I feel like, uh, and that's who was teaching everyone about how to treat your neighbor. And I feel like we're given this opportunity to learn how to treat our neighbor by the most marginalized in our community. And that, and that I think is a real opportunity for us to learn and, and to walk humbly. Um, I just want to highlight one quick thing. Uh, uh, Rhonda highlighted the, the, the root of race in um, the racial, uh, the building of race per se, the construct of race in America. My grandpa, when he came to, well, when his parents came to this country, but when he was maybe in his 20s, he was 100% Sicilian, and he was not considered white. He was, along with Irish, all that, he was not considered white because white at the time was white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, right? That was what whiteness was. But get this, by the time, uh, say, the 50s came along, he was white. How is that possible that you can change the the definition of whiteness to like within within a uh, a thirty year period? And I think the where I'm highlighting it in this is race is a is a thing that is constructed to exclude others. It's it's a social construction that is built to you know, exclude. If you're white, you're included. And and there, there are privileges that come with that. Uh, but I think that when uh, when when I looked at that, I just said, wow, that, that's pretty crazy. My dad was talking about that. And, um, and I think that it just highlights the roots and the nature of race in our country. It needs to be addressed. It needs to be confronted. And we got to get uncomfortable. If we're not comfortable, um, that's a good sign that we're actually we're actually standing in attention and we're we're dealing with things because it's not a black problem it's not a problem with the black community it's not a problem that the black community needs to solve on their own it's a it's a human problem it's something that we all need to step into and, and have these conversations and um and process so darren i applaud you for having this conversation and i appreciate all all of the voices um and it's experiences because you can't like you said as you're kind of framing up the state you can't argue testimony you can't say no i don't i don't know about that these are life experiences and it's crazy to see how similar there how many similarities there are so um i think that's all i got but um but i just am very honored and grateful to be a part of the conversation and um and and i've been Really working to confront my own um, my own part in it that I that I play and and uh, you know Rebecca and I um, uh, really believe that God is doing an amazing thing. I feel like Holly, what you said um, that God is uh, creating a uh, just a holy disruption, um, whether it's through President Trump or not. Um, people may or may not agree. However, I do agree that he is exposing things that have existed for a very long time. And he's saying it's time, it's time to deal with that. I appreciate Arpano what you said about the blood in, in the Nile and that acknowledgement, because it's that place of saying, hey, look, the blood cries out, you know, and, and, and that trauma, I think we, if we as 
the church really step in and, and take ownership, um, then I think we can really see a lot of healing come. So, yeah. Awesome, man. Awesome. So, so good. Thank you so much, Anthony, for um, such a great summary of this conversation. Um, in Seattle, it's 11 o'clock at night here, and I appreciate everyone for staying up uh, super late. I'll just make one little uh, comment, and hopefully it'll it'll uh, be valuable and, and, and I won't have to put my foot in my mouth too, too much. Uh, but as I'm saying this, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go down the line really quick, starting with Abby and, um, uh, and then Arpana and Victoria and Holly. And looks like Michelle's still there. I, I know Michelle kind of ducked, ducked out there for a second, but, uh, she, but she was like, I got to get back. I got to get back to the conversation. Uh, because we're kind of out of time, um, uh, but I would like to hear from you guys. And, and this is going to be a little tricky, but I'd like to hear basically like in one word, like in one hashtag, uh, your hope for this season. Um, it, it almost as like a declaration. Uh, what, what your hopes for this very difficult um, season that we're in as a, as, as a nation. And as, and as you're thinking, because I can, I can, I like Victoria was like, like looking up. She was like, hmm. <laughs> but as, as, you're, as you're thinking, um, I will say that, uh, and I'll use this metaphor. Um, there's a uh, a uh, uh, a Presbyterian pastor that I uh, that I admire a lot, Tim Keller in Seattle, uh, in New York City, New York City, and um, and he was making a um, uh, a statement regarding diversity in denominations, and he said if you are looking for that place of deep sacred introspective liturgy you should go to a uh, to a catholic church and participate in their worship and you'll find something um, where you can participate in the in in something that's sacred and long lasting um, he said if you are looking for robust gospel theology um, you should go to a Presbyterian church, and he and he made a little joke about that, considering he's a Presbyterian uh, minister. He goes, but if you're looking for passionate praise and and worship, you should go to a good charismatic church. And if you're looking for somebody to pray for you because you're sick, um, you should go to a good Pentecostal church. And and his and his point was that if we if we isolate the diversity within the body of Christ, and if we subscribe to this notion that our denomination is the only one true, perfect, that our one denomination or our one Christian preference encapsulates the fullness in the, uh, of who God is, we're doing ourselves a great disservice um, to what's available through just the the, the wonderful di- diversity in denominations um, within within the body of Christ, and I think the same thing would be true when we speak of our ethnicity and our eth- and our ethnic diversity I, uh, within the body of Christ, and I think that um, uh, 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 that when Paul talks about that there's neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile. Um, yeah, he's referring to that place of, of superiority or accessibility, uh, our, our belonging within the kingdom of God. 
He's not saying to deny your femininity or to deny your masculinity, nor is he speaking to deny the, the cultural appreciation of your Jewish heritage or to deny uh, even your Gentile heritage. So in that particular text, he's not, he's not instructing believers to wash their hands of their ethnicity and to, and to burn all the bridges that, that, um, that, that make them unique as a people. Not at all. He's really talking about superiority and accessibility. And, our, and I think that that's an important distinction um, to make because it's important within the church that we don't say that uniformity is the same as unity. Meaning that if you're going to if, right. if, if you're going to be a part of this assembly, you have to look like me, talk like me. You have to wear Converse, say "dude" a lot, have really bad English. <laughs> um, like no, like the the what makes what makes a what makes a community uh, vibrant and relevant is is when you have a, a community of of people that would normally never really gather. You know, that's one of the things I love about Sierra Bible Center is that if you just go and find a seat and you just sit by someone randomly, you don't know who they are, and you ask them who they are and where they're from and what their life is like, you'll probably find that they probably, you probably don't have anything in common with who they are, that they're a radically different person than, than who you are. And I think that that is what the church is supposed to be. That we sh- that that there, that the Church of Jesus Christ should be these gathering places, where where people that are radically radically different, even opposite, come to worship Jesus, love Jesus, and honor each other, all underneath a banner of the Father's love. And I, because when I look at like um, the the Latino community and what they have to offer within. With within the within the, the 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 church, there's this. I don't know if if we can really say that we practice community until we really have embraced what the Latino what the Latino community has like. Like you know, what I'm saying within right. within the Latino community, like you know, if there's not going to be food and and some good music and opportunity to hang out, and yep. then uh, then yep. we, then we're just going to stay home. You know, say like there's. Uh, I love uh, uh, you know Moses uh, and Joan and of course precaution you know go, uh, and Arpana going back to the Indian culture. I love the house blessing tradition and I've I've had the opportunity of, of blessing two different yeah. homes for young uh, Indian families in our church and Andrew and I have already said that once we get our new house built, we're going to do an Indian house blessing because like the there's Come like on. there's this there's this like. There's and and there's going to be curry there. We're we're going all in. I, it's going to be it's going to be amazing. I I love. There's this. There's just this. There's so many things that we can learn from. There's so many things that can provide this, and I, and so what I think that what what I think that we shouldn't do is 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 try to make white people black and try to make black people white and try to and no, try, and try to cut exactly. off. And I don't think anyone's saying that by by any means, but. No. Um, no, no, no. But I do know that there is there is a militancy right now, and we're all feeling that, and 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 yet I really tr- I really believe that underneath it all that the that the cry of of humanity 
is that we would be one. I believe that the cry of humanity uh, underneath all the hurt and underneath all of the pain, underneath all the rejection and, and all, all of the stuff that has happened, that there's a cry in our heart that's the cry of our Father's heart, that we would be one just as He is one. And, and there's just a lot of stuff that we're going to have to work through in order to get there. But I believe that these kinds of conversations, it, it, it helps. It helps to... It helps to to really point out the similarities as far as our as far as our desire uh, to work through some of these things, and so um, I am really looking forward to a uh, 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 seeing how our church, our church, Seattle Revival Center, how our church will will go from glory to glory in a real practical sense, um, because I think that there's a real opportunity for Seattle Revival Center to to learn and to love and to grow and to really become a greater reflection of, of heaven. That's, that's really uh, my desire and the desire of our pastors, elders, and, and team is that we be a diversified community um, uh, where there's, there's the kind of sound and song and praise and frequency that can only be created through so many opposites getting together and loving Jesus and loving each other. <laughs> All right, let's do this. I want to go to Abby and then we'll go Abby and Arpana and your hope, your desire uh, for this, for the season. In, in, in okay. A, in a so, word. Okay. Okay. So I got two hashtags. Good. Cause you to keep it concise. Uh, so my first one is going to be hashtag inclusion. And my second hashtag is hashtag heart change. Good, good, good. Inclusion and heart change. Thank you so much, Abby. Yeah. Beautiful. You're welcome. Yep. Uh, Arpana, what'd you what'd you come up with? Um, I have two hashtags too. Good. Um, I actually go with many more, but I'll I'll I think I'll stick with two right now. My first one is hashtag opportunity. Good. Because what see right from COVID onwards, all I've seen is opportunity, incredible opportunity for us to become the vibrant church that we are called to be, the vibrant body of Christ that we're all called to be, um, in the, again, individually and corporately. Um, so my first hashtag is hashtag opportunity. Um, my second one, um, um, ah, should I go with a third? Can I go with three? I'll just go with three, please. <laughs> Okay, okay, but just just the word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My my second hashtag is reformation. Um as in reformation. Um Good. so reformation and my third hashtag is hashtag real revival. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Inclusion, reformation, and real revival. Yes. No opportunity, reformation and real revival. Opportunity, opportunity. Sorry, I was included. <laughs> like, I, I'm here. I'm present. Here we go. So good. Yes. So good. Um, opportunity, reformation, and real revival. Reformation, real revival. I just wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you so much for creating this environment and for inviting all of us to have this conversation. In my 18 years of having lived here, this is the first time that I've had a serious conversation about any of these things in a formal um, forum. So thank you for providing awesome. that. Thank you for creating this. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it, Arpana. Victoria, I know you've been thinking real hard on this one. So what'd you come up with? So um, it would be hashtag peacemaker.peepeeper. 
Wow, that's awesome. Peacemaker, not peacekeeper. That's good. Really good. Well, Holly, what, what do you have there? I don't really know the rules of hashtags, so I have um, hashtag dig deep and hashtag new beginnings. Come on, dig deep and hashtag new beginnings. Yeah. You, you don't need no rules. You're, you're good. You're good. Okay, thanks. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Michelle Tibbs. Hashtag restoration. Good. Wow. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you for that. Last but not least, Pastor Anthony, what do you got there? Uh, I would say hashtag together. So, so, so good. Yep. And I'll go with uh, hashtag... Oh my gosh, this isn't... Uh, I'm just going to... I'm just going to hashtag the Father's love. I'll go with that one. Guys, thank you so much for being a part. Just wave at everybody. Say goodnight, goodnight, goodnight. Appreciate good night, it. Good night. Good night, everybody. This was great. Thank you, Pastor Anthony and Pastor Darren, for this platform. This was amazing. Thank you so much. Yes. Podcasts are definitely trending right now. There are so many brand new podcasts that are hitting the market, and I think that iTunes is kind of overwhelmed. And one of the ways that iTunes aggregates what's hip and relevant from the rest of the noise that's hitting the web is through ratings and reviews. A bunch of you have already taken the time to leave a rating and a review of this podcast. And I just wanted to say thanks. You guys are incredible, and you're so supportive, and I love you. And if you haven't had a chance to take that minute or two to leave a review. If you do that, that'd be incredible. And I've created a shortcut to get you there. It's thedarrenshow.com. That's thedarrenshow.com. You can give it one star and that means that you think it's kind of lame. Or you can give it five stars and that means that you think this thing be dope, be tight, be off the chain. So if you would take the minute or two to leave a review, that would be mighty fine of you. Again, it's thedarrenshow.com. Thanks guys.